Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome. I'm Kathleen McLean. I'm a programmer here in the Department of Public Programming and Learning, where we foster creativity, learning, and dialogue through experiences with art and ideas. We present talks, screenings, and performances to over 250,000 people of all ages every year. We welcome you here acknowledging that we're gathered on Mississauga territory, on land that's been home to the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, and Wendat through time. It's my pleasure to introduce Matthew Israel. He is an art historian based in New York City. He's currently curator at large at Artsy and director of Artsy Onsite, a global series of artist and curator talks and conversations. Um, previously at Artsy, he was director of the Art Genome Project, which is this fascinating classification system that some of you might know about. It's worth looking at if you haven't seen it. But of course, today, Matthew is here to talk about his brand new, fresh book, The Big Picture, Contemporary Art in 10 Artworks by 10 Artists. And when we heard about this book, we were so excited about the prospect of having Matthew here because it's not every day that a brilliant art historian writes in a widely accessible way about artwork that we all find particularly engaging. I know that a, a number of the artists will be familiar to those of you who visit the AGO. Some of them are in our collection or we've had special exhibitions. Ryan Turcartan had a great show at the power plant not too, too long ago, but I think something interesting will happen when Matthew brings all of them together in conversation. So this is how it's going to go. He's going to speak. Um, we'll have some time for audience questions. A reminder that we're recording today's talk, so if you do have a question, um, wait for me or my colleague Annie to run over to you with a microphone. And following the talk, Matthew will be just outside Jackman Hall and available to sign books. So please join me in welcoming Matthew Israel. I'm going to make sure all of you can hear me before I start speaking. You can hear me? Yes? Okay, great. Um, <clears throat> thanks for, uh, for being here today. This is my first time in Toronto, so I'm, I'm very excited. Yeah. Okay, that's it. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, so thank you all for coming. Um, I, I want to first just uh, thank the Art Gallery of Ontario for this invitation, which was uh, so exciting. Um, I have a few... Uh, colleagues um, that work at the Art Gallery of Ontario have worked here, and I've always had a really great respect for the institution. And uh, I just want to say thank you for um, kind of bringing me into the loop here. I just want to also say thank you to Annie and Kathleen in uh, particular for, for all their help in uh, getting me here. So, um, so the big picture is a, a survey of contemporary art in 10 artworks, uh, in 10 works by 10 artists since the millennium. Each chapter focuses on the story behind one work, and from that work, it zooms out to talk about 10 of the most significant tendencies or trends in the contemporary art world. It's written in an accessible language for a wide audience. It's reasonably priced. Um, I was a little shocked by the price outside, but then I found out it was Canadian dollars. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's small enough to fit in your bag, and that was very purposeful. Um, one of the governing ideas of the book is that a focused study of 10 works might be just as beneficial, if not more beneficial, than often overwhelming surveys, which try to pack in many works and many aspects of the contemporary art landscape. The big picture is primarily inspired by experiences teaching contemporary art history and my work at Artsy on the Art Genome Project. 
The big picture emphasizes storytelling about works of art, the attention needed to look at contemporary art, and shows how such close looking can reveal the depth, the power, and the nuance of works of art. My hope is that the big picture will serve as a substantive jumping off point for learning about contemporary art and be just as interesting to a larger public as it is to art world insiders. So, the 10 works in the uh, big picture are as follows. Whoops, sorry, we, oh God, we backed up. Sorry, you get to see the whole presentation. Okay. This is good. I broke the ice, okay. Um, so, the 10 works are, this is Rhine II of 1999 by the Dusseldorf-based German photographer Andreas Gursky. Compared to the historical scale of the photographic image, small black, white, and gray rectangles about the size of one's head, Rhine II is enormous, uh, about this big actually. The biggest prints in the series for Rhine II was actually an addition of six, measured almost 12 feet long and seven feet high. The photograph, this photograph is the most expensive photograph that was ever sold. One print sold for almost $4.4 million at auction in 2011. You can all gasp, okay. <laughs> Um, Gursky was one of the major reasons for the upsurge in large-scale photography in the late 1990s and into the 2000s, and it's his big pictures uh, in a New Yorker article named as such by Calvin Tompkins, which inspired the book's title. This is The Weather Project of 2003 by Icelandic Danish artist Olafur Eliasson, and this is the cover of the book. Eliasson's work at the Tate Modern was the fourth commission to fill the museum's monumental turbine hall, and it's considered by some to be the largest indoor artwork that was ever created. It led to further large-scale works by Eliasson, such as his New York Waterfalls project, uh, commissioned by the Public Art Fund, that was installed in and around the Brooklyn Bridge in 2008. The Weather Project was the most popular of the Tate's Turbine Hall series, and it was representative of the broader trend beginning in the late 1990s, in which museums around the world began to regularly install monumental scale artworks indoors as exhibitions unto themselves. This is Huffy Howler of 2004 by Rachel Harrison, who is based in New York. This work was made of wood, polystyrene, cement, acrylic, a Huffy Howler bicycle, handbags, rocks, stones, gravel, brick, sheepskin, foxtails, a metal pole, wire, a pigmented inkjet print, and binder clips. It was one of the central works in Unmonumental, the first show at the New Museum's new building on the Bowery in the fall of 2007. Unmonumental, the show, was one of the best-known exhibitions to capture one of the era's dominant trends in sculpture. This trend questioned the medium's monumentality, its materials, and its expected composition through the use of found objects, the process of assemblage, or the strategy of the mashup, i.e. the combination of seemingly opposite or highly unassociated objects or materials together to make one work. This is Kahindi Wiley's Napoleon Leading the Army Over the Alps of 2005. Born in South Central Los Angeles, Wiley's work consistently took an unknown African-American man and placed him squarely in the seat of world-renowned, in many cases white and Western European, power. In this case, Wiley based his painting on Jacques-Louis David's Napoleon Crossing the Alps of 1801. 
Wiley's one of the best known figurative paintings, uh, painters in the world, and his exposure had spanned major art institutions and also television with the hit Fox TV drama, Empire. His success is just one example, though, of how African-American art has become much more visible in American galleries, museums, and academia in recent years after centuries of either exclusion or, at best, inconsistent representation. <clears throat> this is Sao Paulo-born Vic Muniz's Marat Sebastio of 2008, which is also based on a David painting, David's Death of Marat of 1793. And I'm going to quiz you all on these dates when we're done. This work was part of a series called Pictures of Garbage, in which Muniz collaborated with trash pickers. These are people who separate out recyclables from trash in one of the largest dumps in the world, Rio's Jardim Gramacho. It's a photograph taken from above of a large-scale sculpture whose medium is garbage. Among the materials used to make this work are toilet seats, tires, plastic bags, computer monitors and keyboards, buckets, detergent containers, a record player, swimming flippers, a briefcase, tarps, and shoes. And I'll just point out, I think I have a laser pointer here. Uh, does it work? Uh, yes, toilet seats, right, things like that. These are all flip-flops. Is that what you call them in Canada, flip-flops? Yeah. <laughs> so this piece only existed to be photographed. And like all of Muniz's similar works, it was destroyed after the photography was completed. Pictures of Garbage was documented in the 2010 film Wasteland, and this was nominated for an Oscar for Best Documentary. This is Remembering of 2009 by the Chinese artist Ai Weiwei. This work was installed at the Haus der Kunst in Munich and features 9,000 children's backpacks. In many ways, it's a response to the silence of the Chinese government after the collapse of poorly constructed schools and the death of thousands of students in the Sichuan province in western China as a result of the 2008 7.9 magnitude earthquake that devastated Sichuan province. Remembering is just one example of Ai Weiwei's political engagement. His career has featured a long line of artworks and writings promoting freedom of expression and human rights, which in the process challenged Chinese cultural values and political authority and led to his, his internationally condemned detainment in 2011. This is a still from Popular Sky section-ish of 2009 by Ryan Tricartan. This is a video work that was included in Ryan Tricartan's traveling one-person exhibition in 2010-2011 entitled Any Ever. Any Ever's mov uh, movies could be described as tempests. They feature an incredible amount of talking which has been described as compu-pop poetry, as well as compulsive and frenetic ed editing, garish graphics, and cacophonous physical sets. As a result, hysterical realism is one label which has been applied to Tricartan's output. Between 2005 and 2011, Tricartan had a very quick rise in the art world, and in reviews of his 2011 show, he was called a wonderkind, a game changer, and quote, the most con consequential artist to have emerged since the 1980s. This is Marina Abramovich's The Artist is Present of 2010. This work was the centerpiece of Abramovich's 2010 MoMA retrospective. By this time, Abramovich was, a well was well established as one of the most critically acclaimed and admired performance artists in the world. 
But this work in many ways cemented her reputation. The artist's present was a very simple but highly strenuous work, testing the limits of the artist physically and psychologically. It consisted of Abramovich sitting silent and still in a chair across from another chair in which anyone could sit silently one at a time for however long they wanted during museum hours. Abramovich sat for the entire run of the retrospective and this added up to 736 hours and 30 minutes. This is New York-based Tauba Arbach's Untitled Fold of 2012. This work was attributed in part to Arbach's research into the fourth dimension. Now, society tends to scoff at contemporary artists who attempt to engage with complex scientific or mathematical concepts in their work. Yet Arbach, born in San Francisco in 1981 and educated at Stanford, has said given unlimited time, she would have pursued a second career in math and she's even helped devise a new set of mathematical symbols for a math researcher. This researcher was working on the halting problem or the reason computer programs get stuck in endless loops. While Arbach's series has become one of the most iconic within contemporary abstract painting, throughout her career she's moved freely among painting, sculpture, photography, and even publishing. This is A Subtlety of 2014 uh, by Kara Walker. Her collaboration with the organization Creative Time at the former Domino Sugar Factory in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. The full title of this work was A Subtlety, or The Marvelous Sugar Baby, an homage to the unpaid and overworked artisans who have refined our sweet tastes from the cane fields to the kitchens of the new world on the occasion of the demolition of the Domino Sugar refining plant. Its centerpiece was an enormous bright white sculpture of a nude woman. She was 35 feet tall and 75 feet long with a polystyrene core covered with approximately 8,000 pounds of refined white sugar that were all it was all donated by Domino. The sculpture's pose and exaggerated features drew on two racial stereotypes of African-American women as mammies and as hypersexualized, as well as historical sculpture of sphinxes. A subtlety was Walker's first sculpture and in this way a significant risk by one of the most successful and critically acclaimed artists of our era. A subtlety became the most talked about art event in New York City's recent memory, generating constant lines and especially debate, particularly due to how some spectators interacted with the piece, both in person and online. You can go grab a seat. <laughs> um, so these 10 artworks, are the focus of the big picture, but they also serve as departure points to discuss some of contemporary art's larger trends, some of which I've alluded to thus far, but which are specifically large-scale topographic photography, monumental installations, sculptural mashups, the return of figurative painting, political and collaborative projects, the continued rise of video and performance, the return of abstract painting, even more, ever more monumental public art, and works engaging with racial and sexual themes. Now, importantly, the big picture is not a top 10 list, nor does it encapsulate all of the influential happenings of the contemporary art world. It's also not just about the present. Consistently, because most new art trends bear a significant relationship to the past, each work is contextualized and each trend is contextualized by the historical art movements they might be rooted in. 
The big picture ends with suggestions for further learning about contemporary art and a conclusion featuring various topics, questions, and concerns related to the present, the future, and the future of contemporary art. There's also a bibliographic list of resources for those interested in learning more about the subject. So now I'd like to read you some excerpts from some of the book's chapters. In 1994, the Tate Gallery in London announced an ambitious plan for the future that would dramatically affect the course of contemporary art. After a four-year search for a new London museum site, sought out because the Tate, home of the National Collection of British Art from 1500 to the present, and the Tate is on the left, had little space to show its 62,413 work collection, the museum decided to renovate the 100,000-square-foot Bankside power station on the right, and this uh, stood opposite the Thames from St. Paul's Cathedral. The Tate would convert the massive station for a projected cost of $120 million and then split its collection between two museums. Tate's current building would be renamed the Tate Gallery of British Art and would house British art from 1500 and with some Brit modern British art included. The new building would become the Tate Gallery of Modern Art and would house modern art from 1900 to the present day and also include works of modern British art. The new building would become the largest modern and contemporary art museum in the world. <clears throat> Tate Gallery of Modern Art opened as the shortened and sexier Tate Modern on May 11th of 2000 at a final cost of $200 million. The architects Jacques Herzog and Pierre de Muron led the renovation and became internationally recognized and constantly in demand as a result. On the whole, critics praised the new Tate. London now had a modern museum that rivaled New York's Museum of Modern Art and the Centre Georges Pompidou in Paris, both of which were either currently undergoing or were soon undergo their own renovations. In its first year, 5.25 million people visited Tate Modern, making it the most popular museum in the world. <clears throat> Tate Modern's most unique feature is its immense Turbine Hall. How many of you have been to Turbine Hall? Okay, so that's great. So um, just for those of you who haven't been there, the, the picture on the left is like a fuller view, and this is more of a close-up view, but it's looking, um, it's looking uh, towards the Thames. <clears throat> Named after the electricity generators that previously occupied the space, it measures 35,520 square feet, or 500 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 12 stories tall and takes up half of the museum's total volume. <laughs> Access from the western end of the new building by a 75-foot-long ramp <clears throat> Okay, <clears throat> I thought that was like part of my presentation. <clears throat> it's okay. <clears throat> so the halls compared most flatteringly to the cathedral-like spaces of St. Paul's and less generously to a monumental tomb. The new space was meant to function as both a dramatic entryway and, perhaps more important, as an unprecedented arena for large-scale sculptural projects and installations. These projects were slated to take place on a yearly basis and would be sponsored by Unilever, the international consumer products manufacturer. The fourth Unilever commission, which was installed from October 2003 through March 2004, featured a work by Icelandic Danish artist Olafur Eliasson and was called The Weather Project. <clears throat> In 
The Weather Project greeted visitors to the Tate with an all-encompassing but minimally altered environment. Upon entering the cavernous turbine hall, their gaze was drawn across the entire length of the space to the opposite wall, where a huge glowing orb hovered near the ceiling. The luminous yellow-orange of the orb, as well as its position, forced easy comparison to the sun. When visitors looked directly up, a ceiling covered with mirrors bounced their reflections back at them, amplifying further the dimensions of an already enormous space. A fine mist filled the hall, diffusing the orb's spellbinding glow throughout the room while blurring its boundaries and edges. Because Eliason's work, unlike the previous Unilever installations, effectively used the entire volume of the space, it was called the largest indoor contemporary artwork ever produced. As with his previous works, which allowed viewers to see the structure, in essence, balancing out the mystifying effect, Eliason did not hide how the weather project was created. Visitors could walk below his sun and discover that it was plastic foil. They could also view the 200 monofrequency sodium yellow lamps, the kind that are used for street lights, that illuminated it, creating 18,000 watts of indoor rays. Furthermore, they could see that the sun was actually not a full circle, but only half of one, placed at ceiling height and completed by the aforementioned mirrors. One thing visitors could not see were the humidifiers that pumped the mist made out of sugar and water into the space. Over two million people came from all over the world to experience the spectacular environment of the weather project during the course of the show. The work became a phenomenon and was compared to a pop culture event akin then to the reality series Survivor or the Academy Awards. Everybody remember Survivor? Yes. And it did not hurt that a gigantic indoor sun during the coldest time of the year in London provided a sunny space to socialize. People reacted in a variety of ways upon encountering the weather project. Some sat or laid down on the concrete floor, staring into the fake sun's rays. Others were more interested in their reflections high above and spent time trying to locate or follow themselves or their movements. At a few points, groups of people came up with the idea of using their bodies to spell out words on the floor, effectively creating a massive and unintentional billboard or canvas in a very popular public space. <clears throat> in one instance, as this was during the early days of the Iraq War, the night before US President George W. Bush visited Britain, roughly 80 protesters arranged their bodies to spell out, Bush, go home. Visitors to the Weather Project were generally excited and awestruck, and the critical reaction was, on the whole, laudatory. Yet a few saw dark, darker aspects to the piece. For example, the critic Carol Deal wrote in Art in America, it was a mesmerizing, highly romantic image, but at the same time there was something creepy about it. The yellow light, far from being flattering, seemed to drain the color from everything it touched. A low hum, either from the lights or the fog machines, contributed to the sense of artificiality. It reminded me of a famous study done in the 1950s where baby monkeys, deprived of their mothers, accepted man-made surrogates, snuggling up to them in lieu of the real thing. In the same way, Eliason replaced the sun, source of all life, with a mechanical device that caused people to behave as if they were in Central Park's sheep meadow on a sunny day. Sitting or sprawled on the museum's cold concrete floor, they appeared not to care that the disc emitted no warmth, just light. 
Other critics were also bothered by what the work brought out in people. They argued that visitors' obsessions with themselves and the mirrors reflected the increased narcissism of our lives today. And this was before the rise of social media and selfie culture. Yet such reactions, as Deal suggests, were footnotes to the greater experience of the work. It was a rare opportunity for light and community, especially in the winter months. It allowed people to stop and relax in the museum, which even with massive attendance numbers for major museums these days is still not commonplace. It created an almost spiritual experience, hearkening back to one of the earliest objects of worship, the sun. It also created a space for people to exercise their freedom of speech about significant political issues. According to Eliason, the weather project was about the weather. In preparation for the installation, he sent out a survey to the Tate staff, which included questions like, to what extent are you aware of the weather outside your workplace? And has a weather event ever changed the course of your life dramatically? The results from the survey were then used to advertise the exhibition. But as a finished work of art, the weather project did not seem to be about the weather, or at least as much, about, much less about the weather than about other things. The indoor space of the museum was not really an environment with weather, weather usually connotes bad weather, but a misty sunny day that never changed. And some of the biggest issues put forth by the piece had nothing to do with the weather, even though the piece, like many of Eliason's other works, made people conscious, especially in urban environments, of how nature and the weather are mediated. In addition to raising questions about community or religion or narcissism, the Weather Project questioned the division between art and life and prompted discussion about the aims of museum programming or installations, as well as how people should engage with artworks. Formally and conceptually, the Weather Project was a novel project. Its combination of mirrors and mists and light to create an indoor experience larger than anything seen before still stands as an extremely innovative turn in contemporary art and art history. At the same time, the Weather Project, as much as of Eliason's other work, did not come out of nowhere. On one hand, critics saw immediate comparisons to iconic modern paintings, such as those by Mark Rothko, as well as J.M.W. Turner's images of the sun rising through vapor. The Turner comparison was fitting for Eliason, um, Eliason's altar to the sun, as Turner's dying words were allegedly, the sun is God. On the other hand, Eliason's work recalled even more directly minimalist and post-minimalist artists of the mid to late 1960s, particularly those artists of the era who focused on light and what Lucy Lepard famously labeled the artwork's dematerialization. That is, its movement away from objects to forms or environments that could be scattered, ephemeral, or conceptual. California artist James Terrell, and this is his installation at the Guggenheim Museum in New York, is probably the strongest departure point for Eliason's glowing orbs due to the room-filling light installations he began creating in the 1960s. There's also the work of Robert Irwin, a lesser-known contemporary of Terrell's, who in the 1960s, and this is Irwin's installation at the Vienna Secession, I think in 2014. Um, Irwin progressively moved away from creating abstract paintings towards environments using minimal materials like scrim to manipulate natural light and shadows. Eliason, in fact, cites a biography of Irwin, the critically acclaimed Seeing is Forgetting the Name of the Thing One Sees by Lawrence Weschler. And if any of you haven't read that book, I would try to read it if you like contemporary art. 
It's an incredible biography. And he, uh, Eliason cites that as a major influence. An important difference between Terrell and Irwin and Eliason is that Eliason often seeks to engage the whole body with his works, not just vision, using temperature and sound effects, as well as other elements to stimulate multiple senses, though many viewers find Irwin and Terrell's works equally involving of the senses. Also, as mentioned previously, unlike Terrell, Eliason does not conceal the nuts and bolts behind his works. So that's all for Eliason. I'm going to read you two more excerpts. Kara Walker's collaboration with Creative Time at the slated for demolition Domino Sugar Factory in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, opened to the public on May 10th of 2014. The full title of the exhibition, and I know I've read this to you before, but I want to read it again, was quite long and was written on a wall outside of the building. The title was, At the behest of Creative Time, Kara E. Walker has confected a subtlety or the marvelous sugar baby, an homage to the unpaid and overworked artisans who have refined our sweet tastes from the cane fields to the kitchens of the new world on the occasion of the demolition of the Domino Sugar Refining Plant. Visitors then encountered something that was far from subtle. Upon entering the space, they turned a corner and came upon an enormous bright white sculpture of a nude woman. 35 feet tall, 75 feet long, the sculpture had a polystyrene core covered with approximately 80,000 pounds of refined white sugar. The effect was blindingly white, yet the woman in the sculpture presented as black, her pose and exaggerated features drawing on two racial stereotypes of African-American women, as mammies and as hypersexualized, and also this image of historical sculpture of sphinxes. Mammies were invoked by the handkerchief wrapped around her head and the figure's voluminous breasts. A significant iconography of the mammy stereotype as one of their principal roles was nursing white children. The woman's breasts, which Walker said stared at you, and her large butt looming high in the air presented a stereotype of the hypersexualized black woman. Oh, I'm going to go back. We'll look at that in a second. Huh. It's interesting how shocking it is, even in a photograph. Um, some, of, uh, some of Walker's uh, source imagery included the hot and tot Venus, Jezebel stereotypes, and the butt-focused contemporary African-American magazine called Straight Stunton. But these features were subtle compared to the woman's 10-foot vulva, clearly delineated and exposed to anyone who walked around behind her. While there were no barriers stopping you from walking right up to the figure, you felt as if you could not engage her. In her sphinx pose, the figure's face loomed far above you and stared off into the distance, her eyes without pupil or pupils or irises, so that no one could, even if they were able to scale her heights, make eye contact with her. Walker called her eyes, eyes that have no eyes, that seem to be either looking out or closed. The woman's left hand was also positioned in the fig gesture, thumb thrust out between the second and third fingers of a clenched fist, which has different meanings in different cultures, but generally refers to either a woman's sexual organs, heterosexual sex, or fuck you, further suggesting this woman may not appreciate your presence. It's also worth remembering that sphinxes are historically treacherous creatures. The woman was not the only sculpture in the room. 14 60-inch tall sculptures of boys surrounded her, and though no indication of their relationship to the woman was given, 
One felt that they were her attendants or her children. Like the Mammy Sphinx, the boys were also made out of sugar. Some were cast entirely out of sugar, roughly 300 pounds for each one, or were constructed out of resin and then coated in a sugar and molasses slurry to give the impression that they were composed completely out of sugar. But unlike the large white sculpture, the boys were brown or amber colored. Nato Thompson, the curator from Creative Time, remarked that the boys' coloring was so close to the walls of the molasses-covered warehouse that they looked like they could have walked right out of them. The boys carried baskets and bananas in their arms, and their features were patterned after ceramic, resin, and plastic blackamores Walker found on Amazon.com that had been made in China. Blackamores were a historic genre of decorative art originating in Italian art after Europeans encountered the Moors, and featured romanticized images of African servitude. These actually continue to exist today. Supposedly, the United States is the number one importer of such objects. The five cast sugar figures were incredibly fragile. Two of them fell apart before the exhibition opened. Yet they remained in the show nevertheless. Walker placed their body parts in the remaining boys' baskets. The other cast sugar sculptures existed in various stages of decay as the exhibition progressed and as the weather warmed. Some lost their arms, while other parts of them slowly liquefied. As with the other boy sculptures, Walker made a point of collecting their lost parts and pieces as they fell off and placing them in the baskets of the boys that were still standing. While a subtlety looked markedly different from Walker's best-known paper installations, it employed a similar methodology. It drew you in with something pretty, charming, and crowd-pleasing, but a closer examination of the artwork itself and your thoughts about it revealed deeply disturbing and unsettling underlying historical references. Walker compared a subtlety to the Trojan horse, something that looked like a benign gift but hid a dangerous secret inside and she has talked about her work as inciting a sense of giddy discomfort. By sculpting a monumental hybrid of a mammy and sphinx and her attendant black boys out of sugar, Walker reminded us how much sugar had dominated the African diaspora. Innumerable horrors were suffered by African slaves in the international sugar trade, a grievous history in which are found the roots of both the modern globalized economy in an environment where it was acceptable for black people to endure entire lives full of torture and servitude. A subtlety also brought specific attention to the roles of black women in slavery, where they were forced into one of two stereotypical roles, a mammy who cared for the families of their white owners, or a sexual toy to satisfy the carnal desires of plantation owners and give birth to his labor force. How black women were treated uh, sexually during slavery remains one of its darkest and still underexposed aspects. The disintegrating sculptures of the boys were an additionally haunting reflection of how destructive sugar had been on the lives of millions of people. The falling limbs were particularly resonant, as torn and severed limbs were notoriously commonplace at sugar mills. Walker's emphasis on refinement in her title was also important. Sugar was historically not considered its best until it was cleaned of its molasses and refined into its crystalline white state. And the installation was undertaken in a room where brown sugar waited to be refined. 
In this context, it was not difficult to see parallels between the destruction of black lives to make white sugar and the pain of so many African Americans who have had to live in a society where whiteness was so long equated with refinement and purity. <clears throat> so this is the last excerpt, and it's on Marina Abramovich. The artist's present was the centerpiece and only new work within Marina Abramovich's MoMA retrospective, which traced her career and featured approximately 50 works from over four decades. Most of what was included in the show, its interventions and sound pieces, video works, installations, photography, solo performances, and collaborative performances, were documentations of previous performances. Yet there were also these things called re-performances of five of the artist's past work by other performers Abramovich had handpicked and prepared. 36 performers rotated throughout the various works of the exhibition over the course of the show. The re-performances dramatically animated the historical exhibition, which in their absence would have consisted of just paperwork, photography, and video. All but one of the works featured nude performers. Such nudity, regardless of its purpose, day in and day out, generated a fair share of publicity for the show. The artist's present was, in some respects, a very simple work. It consisted of Marina Abramovich sitting silent and still in a chair across from another chair in which anyone could sit silently one at a time for however long they wanted during museum hours. Again, Abramovich, Abramovich sat for the entire run of the retrospective, which was 736 hours and 30 minutes. A few theatrical touches heightened the drama of the piece. Abramovich and her sitter were at the center of a 60-foot square that was taped off and over and which no one could cross, and it encouraged comparisons to a boxing match. Very bright studio lights also lit the space at all four corners. These lights presented Abramovich and the sitter beautifully, but more practically served to light their faces for photographs that would be taken by the photographer Marco Anelli of every individual person who sat across from the artist. MoMA posted these images on its website as a part of the exhibition. The artist's present connected most directly to Abramovich's earlier works that were called Night Sea Crossing and The House with the Ocean View. And on the left is uh, Night Sea Crossing, and on the right is House with an Ocean View. Originally, uh, the artist's present was supposed to have included a seven-platform scaffold installed in the atrium walls and connected by ladders, akin to the House with the Ocean View as it was installed at uh, Sean Kelly Gallery. So like, it was supposed to have these platforms and ladders and have Abramovich up on this platform. But the artist moved away from the idea of having herself on an altar as she wanted to connect more directly with the audience. At the same time, the insertion of an empty chair was an entirely new aspect for the work, quite different from Night Sea Crossing, uh, which was a much more close connection between her and her longtime collaborator, Ule. And according to philosopher and art critic Arthur Danto, quote, no one except perhaps Marina herself knew what the effect of this empty chair would be. Because of its connections to the past, Abramovich saw the artist's present as maintaining an important line of continuity in her oeuvre, which was obviously advantageous for the central work in her retrospective. The artist's present would become the longest uh, performance work to ever be staged in a museum. Other than the switching of sitters, 1,565 of them in total, 
Very few variables changed over the course of the show. Initially, there was a table between the two chairs, but it was removed after roughly a month. Abramovich also changed the type of outfit she wore three times, alternating between three long robes, blue in March, red in April, and white in May. People came from around the world to sit across from Abramovich. Though the line was supposedly democratic, that is, first come, first serve, there was a VIP list to sit with her, and this allowed for star sittings with the likes of Sharon Stone, James Franco, Rufus Wainwright, and others, but also performance art stars such as Joan Jonas, Valley Export, and Ule. Apart from the VIP list, as the exhibition wore on, there were also new stars that arose out of those who waited in the normal line, and these were particularly obsessive repeat visitors who tried to sit with the artists as many times as they could. Paco Blancas, and I think this is him, a New York-based makeup artist was one of them. Blanca supposedly held the record for the time spent sitting with Abramovich over the course of the exhibition. He was able to sit with her 21 times. <laughs> In the midst of the VIPs and people like Blancas, others would come and wait, some as long as the entire day or for multiple days, to try and sit with the artist, but not be able to, often because someone would choose to sit down and then spend the entire rest of the day there. Although outwardly simple and not anywhere as risky or dangerous as Abramovich's past works, the artist's present was an incredibly painful undertaking. Sitting still for so long, so consistently, took an unbelievable toll on the artist, who at the time was 62 years old. At the end, she said she felt, quote, completely destroyed. But she knew it would be like this and had begun preparing for the performance six months prior by instituting a severe regimen in her life. She became a vegetarian and trained herself to drink liquids only at night, waking herself for a drink every 45 minutes so that she would not have to drink or urinate during the performance. How Abramovich went to the bathroom was a topic of a good deal of media speculation during the run of the show. New York Magazine even published a graphic illustrating three possible ways in which the artist might have managed her bladder under her robe, <coughs> using a catheter, an adult diaper, or a bedpan. But Abramovich maintains that she did not need to go to the bathroom, and when the topic came up, she expressed surprise that such an issue was even being made of it. Abramovich said she had no social life once the exhibition began. She talked to very few people over the three months and commented that, in the eyes of the public, day after day, she felt like a human fish. Even from the beginning, some days were a very public struggle. There were moments where she clearly needed some time to collect herself between sitters. At other moments, she would grimace or shed a tear or seem to be nodding off. Toward the end of the show, there was one moment where she curled up into a ball on the ground, obviously racked with fatigue and pain. Many of those able to spend time with Abramovich had very powerful experiences, and various accounts were shared in articles, blogs, and on social media. In the New York Review of Books, the writer Colm Toybin explained that just sitting in the chair facing the artist and doing nothing else prompted him to consider a wealth of issues and ideas, such as the characteristics of performance art, an experience of encountering death as a child, what it is to hold a gaze, as well as the nature of Abramovich's look. Was it sexual? Was it serious, religious, or sorrowful, or everything at the same time? 
and he wrote, and I'm going to quote him at length. <clears throat> it was like being brought into a room in Enniscorthy when I was a child on the day after a neighbor had died and being allowed to look at the corpse's face. You studied Abramovich's face with the same mystified intensity, as though it would yield something, not come alive exactly, but in a very stillness offer something, an image maybe, that you should know and remember. The gazing came in waves. Sometimes it was easy to relax and just look and blink when you had to, and then look harder. She was always looking directly at your eyes. Her face was not like a mask. Just as the face of someone who has recently died can seem to flicker or move, so too her face seemed at times infinitely suggestive and vulnerable. But it was also sexual, sensuous, spiritual, and that made me both fascinated and uncomfortable. It made me feel that I could spend the day there opposite her, and maybe the next day too, and it also made me want to go. It made me consider at what point I would leave. As soon as I began to think over my options, I forced myself to look at her more closely. I had no, no clear idea what she was thinking, but she was doing a good imitation of someone gazing in the most serious way at someone else, like a painter might gaze in that second before applying the brush to the canvas, or like a sitter in turn might gaze at the painter, or like we should look at paintings ourselves or at things that we believe in. Whatever she was doing, Abramovich was causing a line of energy that made laughter, mockery, irony into things that, into matters that were beside the point. This was serious, too serious maybe, too intimate, too searching. It was either, I felt, what I should do all the time or what I should never do. I wondered if I should go. I tried to look at her harder. I tried to get more from my gaze and from hers. She did not change. Eventually, I bowed to her and turned away from her. She put her head down again and closed her eyes and awaited her next visitor. My stay had lasted 20 minutes. Thank you. Okay. So I guess, yeah, sorry. As promised, we have some time for questions. If you have a question, just raise your hand and we'll bring you a microphone. While you're thinking of questions, I have a question. Matthew, who did you want to put in the book but then had to cut because you were only going to write about 10 artists? 10 oh, well, you can read that in the conclusion, but I, there, <laughs> there's a lot. You want me to read them? <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I think that uh, it was incredibly hard to pick uh, just 10 works, but um, I, the, one of the origins of the class was a taught, uh, uh, origins of the book was a class that I, um, I taught art history at NYU and at Parsons, and I also did these night classes at MoMA. And um, a class I would teach was called Modern in Five, and so it was kind of like a challenge to teach modern art in five objects. Um, and that was wonderful, because at MoMA you could go to the galleries and actually like teach the course from the works. And so I really challenged myself to pick 10 works. But I think there's, you know, there's so much out in the art world, but I, I think it was a compromise between um, trying to show people the landscape of things that I felt like were really prominent trends in the art world, um, uh, being kind of like diverse in terms of medium, approach, theory, 
Um, and, you know, trying to basically, like, think of the things that I could also write well about. Um, you know, I think there were, there's definitely artists in the book that I hadn't written about and I hadn't written about purposely because I just couldn't wrap my mind around them. And I, you know, I love their work, like Ryan Tricartan I wrote about, but I really was afraid of that. Um, I was kind of afraid to write about the Kara Walker piece because it was, like, just so intense and I, I felt like I hadn't resolved how I felt about it. Um, yeah, so that's a short answer, but you should, you should read the book and then you can see all the artists that should be in the book. Um, just a, a follow-up to the um, piece that, Walker's piece that you just talked about. Was controversy in your thinking when you chose that piece? Uh, like why I chose it because it was controversial? Mm -hmm. um, Were you looking forward to the kind of comments that people would have about that particular piece of work? I mean, I think that people already had those comments, like what I'm doing is not, you know, stirring debate in any way, shape, or form. There's so, there was so much debate and kind of controversy, both like in traditional media, also social media about the work. Um, what I tried to do, and you know, I feel like my role as an educator and an art historian is try to give people a, a broader audience that might not have been uh, privy to that. Uh, kind of, you know, overview of what happened and, and sort of give voice to a lot of the different um, sides in the discussion. Thank you. Yep. Do you know anything about the origin of how hard it was to get the Tate Modern built? The reason I'm asking is there is a, a generating station here called the Hearn, which many people are hoping will be the new Tate Modern in uh, Toronto, but it's apparently hugely costly and uh, a lot of people are saying it's unlikely to ever happen. Just curious. Yeah, I, I mean, so the cost of the building was $200 million, right? I think, you know, it, it always depends on your funding scenario, you know, what's being allotted. I think there's like, was a generous public fund for that. Um, it also caught the British economy at a good time, um, which always helps. Um, you know, but I think there's, you know, there's always the argument to be made about uh, reclaiming uh, neglected spaces. You know, generally that can be cheaper, even if there is cleanup involved, um, than than building a new uh, building. And it's, you know, I think that was incredible to look at the power station in the older photograph because no one, you know, who's relatively young would ever identify that as a neglected building, but it was so, you know, it was, it was a neglected building on the Thames for years, and, you know, how, how incredible in, in that way. And, um, you know, I think Herzog and Demuron are, are really, uh, they really push this idea of reclaiming industrial spaces, and, you know, I think there's, there's an interesting kind of, the history of that, I think particularly in the UK, um, you know, Damien Hirst's first exhibition that he had of the young British artist was in a neglected warehouse. You know, there's all this, um, uh, there was, you know, artist studios are reclaiming kind of old industrial spaces. So if you look at it kind of art historical and through a history of contemporary art, that was, the Tate was almost like the institutional imprimatur of that, like, uh, trajectory. Um, which is really interesting. Um, you know, in, in New York, you can see it with sort of spaces like in Soho and, and galleries, but it's less, it's done that less. And I think Herzog and Numiron really kind of made a museum out of um, avant-garde spaces of the post-war period. Um, hello. <laughs> um, Ai Weiwei in New York. Um, what's he doing with his, with this, 
I read about it just the briefly. public art installation. Yeah, yeah. What what is he going to do? The gates or something? Or it, it's not. It's like a series of fences, fences that yeah yes, that are yeah, going to enclose yeah, yeah, public spaces. Yeah. Uh, but you know, it's I think so. Uh, at the I just I, I launched the book in New York last week at the New York Public Library, and on the panel for that event was uh, Nicholas Baum, who who heads the Public Art Fund in New York, and he's been in discussion with Ai Weiwei for, he said, nine years to, oh to make God. that project happen. And they, you know, they've been laboring over the press release. And I, I think there's, I'm sure there's tons of details about how it's gonna happen, whether or not, those are really not in the in the public realm right so now. Is it gonna be in Manhattan or just, or, or in the boroughs or? I don't, I, I don't know, that's a good question. I think things are kind of left open right now. Yeah, okay. but it should be a reason to come to New York. <laughs> Hi, um, I'm just wondering why you want to make this stuff accessible to like lay people, <laughs> or what the motivation was behind that. Um, that's a good question. Uh, yeah, I think um, my approach to being an art historian has always been uh, an educator versus being a scholar. My first book was a more serious art historical study, and. Um, you know, I, and, and I work at a website called Artsy, and uh, you know, the, the mission of the website is similar to kind of my own personal mission, which is like providing access to people, uh, providing access to the art world for people. But you know, I think that the way that I want to do it is to kind of still keep the level of that dialogue sophisticated. You know, not dumbing down the information, but present it in an accessible way. I don't think that you know, you heard the talk today, so that's it's not like the the ideas are, are simplified, but I think it's there's a way in which the jargon of the art world can be kind of purposefully intimidating and purposefully kind of um, exclusionary. Um, but again, I think it really comes back to kind of my my approach to what I do, which is you know my mission is around educating people and kind of sharing the wealth and getting people excited about art and um, yeah. You don't look like you agree with. What <laughs> making it accessible? What do you get out of it? Oh. So who are you? Are you are you are you part of the wider audience? Are you? I guess someone who's not who's not fluent in contemporary art at all, and that's yeah. why I wanted to come today because yeah. um, just like someone who's passionate about it, what what about it is that that like drives you, or what, what would I, you know? I mean, get out of it sounds crude, but mm -hmm. uh, like I guess I just wanted to see sort of a spark of that. Yeah, 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 definitely. Inspired. Yeah, I think there's that's a great question. Um, uh, you know, why should you care about contemporary art? Um, I think just like uh, any kind of piece of culture that you're excited about, whether it's literature or film, you know, art gives you greater insight into your life at its you know best scenario, um, a kind of sense of the the world at large, kind of political struggles, social struggles, you know, there you could see the pieces that I talked about today, they touch about on a lot of issues that, you know, through you might not get exposed to in other ways. So, you know, it's just a vehicle for engagement, um, you know, but also for formal appreciation. I don't, I don't believe in downgrading kind of the aesthetic aspects of art and, you know, the fact that seeing something beautiful is not a bad thing at all. You know, and, and, and increasingly we have experiences where we're just, you know, on our phones and, and experiencing things virtually and art often gives you a chance to kind of be in the public realm and 
foster dialogue and see things you know, in person. But there's more on that in the book. So in the conclusion. <laughs> I'm just wondering if you can say a little bit more about, um, or something about how you approach a work of art. Um, because, you know, I, I experienced the Sphinx as intensely emotional, and I think you did too. But where does the intellectual and the emotional and the, the sort of articulation of it, how does that work for you? Oh, that's a big question. Um, let's see. Uh, how do I approach a work of art? Um, wow. Um, that's, yeah, I guess... I guess in terms of how I would uh, suggest for people that are you know, interested in engaging with art, I think a lot of art kind of takes a lot of time. You know, and it's, I'm not one of these people that says you have to spend like 15 minutes looking at a work of art you know, and just sort of sitting with it. I think that sometimes you can go through a museum and breeze through an exhibition and then things will stick in your head and, um, and you won't stop thinking about it, so it'll be kind of a recurring, like a mnemonic device that sort of reminds you of things. Um, you know, and I think also the, it's really important to realize that like artworks, uh, even historical artworks um, by themselves are, are you know, they're, they're connected to a larger historical discussion, you know, and, and they, they, they necessitate a lot of context. You know, I was just, this is my first time at the Art Gallery of Ontario, and I saw the sort of iconic Rubens that is in the collection. And you know, just looking at it, there's there's really like just like contemporary art, where you walk in and you say, "Hmm, I don't really know what to do with this." Like, there's a lot in that piece that I didn't know what to do with, and so I had to kind of go back and read the labels and kind of understand the history a little bit more. And you know, I'm still like intrigued enough to go back. But I, I think that you know, a big piece of it is that sometimes artworks can just be an invitation, a prompt to kind of look at things. You, there's, there's, I think it's a very um, problematic thing that sometimes uh, art historians or curators believe that you, know, you just need to go to the show and then you'll get it, right? I, I think that's really faulty reasoning. I think that artwork, it takes work. You know, just like understanding literature, understanding a movie, you know, things are not conclusive and, and you know, they can percolate for a long time. Um, um, do you, um, can you hear me? Um, have you met uh, many of the artists that you write about or, or that you study? Um, so yeah, I have funny relationships with some of them. I mean, I, so Andreas Gursky, my first job out of college, uh, my first real art job was working at Matthew Marks Gallery in New York. And um, I was like a lowly assistant sitting at a you know, front desk at the gallery and we represented Andreas Gursky and I carried his photo equipment to a photo shoot that he did at a stock market um, in Connecticut. Uh, and we took a train together and spent like, you know, five hours, half the day together and barely spoke because he didn't speak English and I didn't speak German. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I bought like Christmas presents for his kids. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, and, and then, you know, there's other artists that I've had like, you know, email discussions with and I know people who work in their studios like Vic Muniz. Um, uh, I'm trying to think who else. I've met Ryan Tricartan um, and talked to him. Um, you know, it's funny though, because like a lot of a lot of people, they ask me like, you know, oh, did you spend a lot of time like speaking to the artists about the work? And and I actually I I didn't. 
um, because, uh, you know, I, I, I ran, so I worked at an artist's estate and a foundation. We actually talked about this previously. Um, but uh, so I have a real appreciation for like fact checking on the side of an artist, a gallery or an institution. So every chapter that I wrote, I ran by the gallery or the artist or the foundation or, or not, there's no estates in here, but um, so it was really important to, to get there okay, but I actually, because a lot of these stories and a lot of the facts are, you know, kind of widely known, um, the, the emphasis here was really on trying to craft the approach and the storytelling and trying to think about what is, what's the hook for a larger public? What are the bigger stories to be told here? I think the Eliason chapter is most representative of what's in the book because it shows how it expands out to say, you know, we, we sort of worship this icon of contemporary art, but in actuality it's so connected to light and space work that, you know, many people might have heard of, but, but um, you know, just to show people the historical context of these works. Hi. Down here. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> um, you used the word beautiful in a couple of answers ago, and I wanted to ask you, what you thought the role of beauty was in contemporary art, because I think, you know, people go and they look at Monet's water lilies and they say, oh, that's beautiful. And now a lot of art is not what we would call conventionally beautiful. Do you think that's a barrier for people? And what do you think the role of beauty is in contempor contemporary art? Um, I don't know, that's a, that's a, a humongous question. Um, uh, what do I think the role of beauty is? I think there's, um, this is, these are really good questions. Thank you, everybody. Um, I was saying before I spoke today that I, I could have just done the whole talk just with questions because this is my favorite part. Um, yeah, I think like in brief, I think there's, uh, you know, the, the history of modernism and contemporary art is this sort of uh, push against beauty, right, about these sort of modern ideas. Um, of like you know deconstructing kind of our 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 you know the tradition and all these things that we found to be sacred, um, but you know I, I think there's there's that that can be really intimidating for people for people that are used to seeing um, you know so-called beautiful objects. But I think it's important to kind of take that apart, you know, to understand like well what do we find beautiful? Is that just a cinnamon for figuration? Um, you know, because, uh, and then also to look at things that we might traditionally find to be beautiful, like those things actually might have looked pretty grotesque in their time. You know, there was some, some realism, you know, we, we say like, oh, impressionism is so beautiful, but for the French public in the 19th century, that was grotesque, you know, for, for academic painters. It was a grotesque uh, understanding of the visible world. So, you know, the beautiful is, um, I think an operative term and accessible term for people, but it almost becomes synonymous with tradition. Um, as a dual U.S. Canadian citizen originally from New York and watching what's happening now south of the border, I'd like to know what role do you think contemporary art can or should play, given its ability to appeal on a rational and emotional level, in the resistance movement? No, that's good. Um, uh, so, so my my last book was called "Kill for Peace." It was a it was a history of political art during the Vietnam War, and so what it did was capture. You know, it was meant to be a, a like a, a study that was exposing the history of American engagement in post-war period and kind of the span of 
of types of political engagement for artists. So in short, I think there's a lot of things that artists can do. I think that part of the problem always is that the, the history of political art making and the sort of tradition of that um, gets uh, lost very quickly because people don't want to look back at things that are very painful. Um, often the work is sort of uh, dismissed as being throwaway or you know too propagandistic. Um, but I think that the, the lesson of engagement during Vietnam shows that there's a real span of engagement. So from you know, one of the first, if any of you know Paula Cooper Gallery, it's a quite well-known contemporary gallery in New York. Her first show uh, was a minimalist show uh, in 1968, but it was an anti-war show. And so you would go in the exhibition and you wouldn't know that it was protest art or resistance art, but it was all meant to comment on the administration and, um, and you know, in the, the, the sort of broader political environment. And then the other hand, you have, you know, very kind of graphic um, figurative work like by people like Nancy Spiro, Leon Golub. Uh, you also have artists who were not engaging at all, but were, were creating benefit works that funded anti-war causes. So I think there's a lot of things that people can do, and it doesn't have to just be graphic. You know, it doesn't have to just be figurative. It doesn't have to have like pictures of the president's face in not so nice ways. So, <laughs> yeah. Hi. Do, are there any pieces uh, now or upcoming that you're really excited about that you could recommend? Uh, pieces or pieces, exhibitions or yeah. yes, pieces, exhibitions, installations. Um, well, I think it's an exciting uh, season for the art world. I think that if you're, we were just talking. Um, I was talking with somebody here previously, and I'm looking for her face. About I don't know if she's still here. Um, Venice Biennale is coming up. You know, which is such an exciting biannual exhibition. There's Documenta, which only happens. Uh, uh, where are we, five years? Five years, yeah. Um, which is you know, a curated exhibition in Kassel, so it's like that's supposed to be like the current statement of what's happening in contemporary art. There's, um, you know, I think those are the two things that are really on people's radars right now. Um, I think something that I've been reading about, I've always been, I think Damien Hirst, uh, you know, is, is like a, some people have a real problem with him as an artist, but he just opened this like very spectacular exhibition at the Palazzo Grazi in Venice, which is um, the whole, the premise of the exhibition is that he's rescued all of these artworks from a shipwreck. And it's a, it's like monumental sculpture. I mean, there's, it's, it's, it's a spectacle in so many different ways. and and. I don't know if I like the show, but I want to see it because it's the first time he's made work and uh, maybe like had a show in like seven years. So, um, you know, I think that that's something that's on my radar to kind of spend some time with. Well, first of all, I'd like to thank you for sharing your knowledge. I would be considered a newbie. So I'm uh, just starting my education in art, switching from an advertising background. So uh, I'm quite comfortable in it. But uh, I was also very curious when I looked at the book, did the artist come before the story or did the story force you to go looking for the art? Oh, definitely the art is first. The I think art there's, was first. Yeah. I think that, um, you know, uh, it's interesting. I think that there's been a trend uh, for those of you who have like spent time in the art world or taken art history classes, I, I kind of was educated in an environment where um, a lot of the story or the theory 
came first, and you know, it was, it, and then you have you have shows or books or kind of ideas that then fit in the artworks according to the theory. And it's sort of I would describe it as like a top-down kind of uh, art history where like you start with the idea and then you make everybody fit in your ideas. And that there, I think that what I do is kind of part of a larger push back against that, which is, and I also went to a, I did my PhD to, at the Institute of Fine Arts at NYU, and it's a very object focused, like it's more traditional program, but I think there's also a push back against like the story being primary, and I really wanted to privilege the artworks. And that's why, you know, there's, it's a story, but the story is about one object, where, you know, most of the contemporary art introductory books, they're trying to give you, like, you know, hundreds of objects and, or like, you know, pack in a book that's like this big, that's like a doorstop. And, and they're great, but it's like saying to somebody, well, yeah, I want to learn something. So you hand them, you want to learn the, about the world, so you hand them the encyclopedia. And it's like, it's totally overwhelming. So, you know, this is, the stories are an, an, an access point to understand the works. You know, and the idea is that if you can really focus on what it is to, understand the aspects of individual works, then, then it's a jumping off point to kind of get you excited about it. You had mentioned that you, thank you for a most interesting talk. You had mentioned um, that you weren't sure that you liked the look of the Damien Hirst. You haven't seen it yet, so you know, clearly the conclusion remains open. Were there any of the uh, pieces that you included in the book that you actually dislike but thought that they should be kept because they are iconic in some way or make a point that you wanted to make? I mean, I think that's a challenge of like uh, who I consider to be like good historians is that you can, you have to, you, you, I feel a responsibility to talk about things that I don't necessarily like. Um, you know, so I think there's, there's definitely a, a few um, uh, pieces in the book that might not be like my favorite of the artist, but I felt like I had a responsibility. If I'm educating, if this book is a generous object to show people, I felt like I would do a disservice if I was just picking the things that I like because they might not be the best things for you to know. And why would I send you out in the world with something that I like? Because at the end of the day, it's not that important what I like. It's what's important is, is if I can tell you the sort of broader story. <laughs> You're getting a workout. <laughs> Thank you for all of these questions. Uh, could you tell us something about Artsy and the genome uh, issue? I don't know anything about it, and it sounds fascinating. Yeah, sure. So um, Artsy is a website that's it's artsy.net. It's a platform for fine art uh, around the world. Um, we, If you go on, it's kind of like a one-stop destination for learning about art from uh, museums and galleries. There's also um, you know, auction houses on the site. There's, um, there's a magazine that's on the site that's now the, I think we're the top um, arts uh, digital um, magazine online. So um, uh, we work with, I think there's now 4,000 galleries on the platform, 600 museums, about over 60 auction houses. Uh, yeah, so 40,000 artists on the site, so it's really kind of 
aspire to be an encyclopedia for, for art. And importantly, um, it's both a place where you can learn about and also collect art. And that was very antithetical to what you know, goes on in the art world historically. You're either a commercial entity or you're a nonprofit entity. And we actually do both um, because we felt like it was, you know, in some ways it allowed us to do um, really novel things. And, and the Genome Project was one of them. That was the thing that we launched with. So it was a project that was, um, in some ways, uh, those of you familiar with Pandora, the music site? Yeah, do you, you know who that, know what that is? You don't have it in Canada? Oh my God, um, terrible. So, <laughs> okay. Um, so Pandora, the, it's, a, it's a music site and in very brief uh, explanation, it's a site where you can go on and type in like a, an artist or a song that you like and it will then play that artist or song but it will also give you recommendations off of that. And so the idea is it's kind of like a recommendation engine. And the backbone of that site was a thing called the Music Genome Project. And what it was was a lot of, like, started by a musicologist, and it was a lot of people actually going through artists and, and music and actually giving them sophisticated tags. And so uh, it, you think they created this massive database of, of metadata, which is, like, sophisticated tags. So you're creating, like, cataloging artists and music. So, you know, you can go online and get recommendations. We did the same thing for art. So I started at Artsy six years, six years ago. I was going into academia. I, met, I, I was looking for academic jobs for like three months. I met these two guys who were starting this website. There was 11 people, now we're like 180 people. Um, we're, we were, um, so I ran this project for, for four years. And what it was was on one hand, like a massive brainstorm about all the possible terms you could use to talk about art. So anywhere from formal concerns to theoretical concerns to iconography to where an artist lived or worked. So if you think about any way that you can talk about art, you know, the way I would talk about it is like if you stacked up every single art book and had laser beams shooting through them of all the similar words, those would be the, the terms. So the, you have your whole term list and then you have all the artworks and you apply all of those terms to the artworks so you catalog them in a more sophisticated way than people had been access to historically. And so the, the problem with, with search is that, you know, you can, um, you, you can have a massive database, but for art, historically, you would go on and if you knew the artist's name or like the title of the work or the date, you could find something. But it, it wouldn't even be attributed to an artwork if it was impressionist or not. So we actually created a list of a thousand terms that you could apply to artwork. And you can apply as many as you want to each one. And they also have values from zero to 100 each. So you can actually dial it up or dial it down according to the nuance. And that's what kind of hooked me because I was really averse to working at a place where I was like tagging artworks, but this was actually giving it a lot of nuance. So that's the long answer to your question. <laughs> Hi. Um, it seems like today we've spoken uh, a bit about art and its relationship to different types of themes. So for example, uh, art and beauty, art and race, art and politics. Can you speak to us a little bit about uh, the relationship between art and commerce and where you see that, um, how that relationship evolves in the coming years? That's a big question too. It's like the beauty question. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think there, there's so many ways in which art and commerce relate, whether or not it's the, you know, the function of the art market and who, who makes 
artists who makes like the art world go, you know, and it's a very small group of people, um, you know, art collectors that actually like, you know, make artist careers are, you know, uh, quite small number of people. I think that there's, you know, but I think there's, I was talking to somebody last night about the, the sort of wider reach of art. And um, I think there's some really amazing things going on in terms of, uh, you know, commerce, like other industries getting interested in art. So I think what's been most visible recently is like the music industry, you know, has always been interested in contemporary art, but now it's like really visual through like music videos, social media. Um, you have like Jay-Z doing a performance uh, video with Marina Abramovich. You have um, Lady Gaga doing a whole album that's like with Jeff Koons on the cover. You have um, Drake, Toronto native, uh, doing a whole video, um, you know, the cell phone video that has a, like basically a James Terrell in the background. So there's ways in which like the, you know, Kanye West debuted his last album at Design Miami in Basel, which is a very kind of high-end uh, design fair. Um, so, you know, I think there's ways in which like, there's, uh, I, I think that's an interesting thing. It's a huge question, but I think like that's, those are, those are two bullet points, I guess, for me. Thank you All right. very much for this talk. And I feel like you, thank you for coming to Toronto to tell us about it. I feel like you have more books in you. So when that happens, you must come back. Um, anyone who would like to acquire a book, we're selling them right outside that door. And thank you all for coming. Yeah, thank you so much.